Hey, and welcome to episode 60. Much appreciation hurled your way for taking the time to click on that little triangle that points to the right for a go-round of this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic, past, present, and future. Whether this is your first listen or your 60th, thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Well, here we are in mid-August, also known as the Sunday month of the summer, June being Friday and July being Saturday which means the fall season is inching its way closer and closer to those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. In the movie world, that means we'll be deluged soon with the latest batch of Oscar hopefuls as studios gear up to release their more prestigious pickings. But we're not there yet, so for today's episode, we're going back to the 1970s, an era when the concept of the summertime blockbuster was just getting off the ground. We'll talk a little bit about what the summer blockbuster meant for the film industry, which was coming out of an era of edgy, independent filmmaking where the work was more of a personal artistic expression than profit-driven, generally speaking. Directors like Robert Altman, Mike Nichols, Francis Ford Coppola, Arthur Penn, William Friedkin, Martin Scorsese, and Hal Ashby were making their mark while non-traditional leading actors like Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Karen Black, Robert De Niro, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson played anti-heroes, and hard-edged cynics whose attitudes and perspectives reflected the jaded cynicism of the times. The energy crisis, the oil embargo, the economic recession, the Watergate scandal, and the Vietnam War. The hopefulness of the hippie movement gave way to disillusionment, which propelled cultural juggernauts like Five Easy Pieces, Harold and Maude, The Godfather Films, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, Easy Rider, The French Connection, Connell Knowledge, and Midnight Cowboy. This was pretty much the late 60s, mid-70s that we're talking about. By the way, a few shameless plugs. Episode 50 covered The First Godfather, with special guest Carlo from the Movie Loop Podcast. Episode 19 looked at The French Connection. And episode 53 looked at Connell Knowledge. Check them out. But anyway, the late 60s and early 70s. So... Both of today's films are from the early to mid-70s and were directed by the one person who practically reinvented cinema with his iconic stories and characters. I speak, of course, of Steven Spielberg. And the films in question, 1971's Duel and 1975's Jaws. So if the idea of two 45-year-old-plus motion pictures from the early stages of the career of a worldwide famous director is a bit eyebrow-raising for you, resulting in one big scream of... It's okay, relax, relax. Could I provide encouragement in the form of the words of actress Lauren Bacall? It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So here's the breakdown for this episode. A little bit of Spielberg's personal and professional background. Then spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Duel and Jaws. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. So join me as we rewind to the tumultuous decade of the 70s for a look at this guy Spielberg and his early work that remains strong signs of the talent that he has in his directorial fingertips. Stephen Allen Spielberg, born on December 18, 1946, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was interested in storytelling and filmmaking from when he was a young kid. As a teenager, he made a 40-minute-long war movie called Escape to Nowhere. This was 1962 when he was 16. In 1968, when he was 22, he made a short about hitchhikers called Amblin, which would go on years later to become the name of his production company. Amblin caught the attention of Universal Studios. 
They gave him a seven-year directing contract, and he began working in their television division, directing episodes of shows like Columbo, The Name of the Game, Marcus Welby, M.D., and Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law. He began associating with other directors of the era, an era known as the New Hollywood, because of its anti-establishment spirit. These were directors who went for authenticity, verisimilitude, not traditional Hollywood glamour. In fact, actress Margot Kidder, who would start out in horror films like Bob Clark's Black Christmas and Brian De Palma's Sisters, before achieving the status of legend for playing Lois Lane in the Superman films, she ran around in the same circle as these directors. And in a great book about this time period called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, she said, quote, Stephen loved movies, but this gang of guys who were going to put how they saw life on a film not only knew about film, but knew an extra element, which was artistic. They were going to be artists, end quote. In that same book, writer-director John Milius, who would do 1973's Dillinger, 1979's Apocalypse Now, 1982's Conan the Barbarian, he has this to contribute about Spielberg. Quote, Stephen was the one who ran out to buy the trade papers. He was always talking about grosses. End quote. So there you have one aspect of Spielberg's regard for his craft that differed from those of a lot of his colleagues in this time. He was profit-focused and profit-driven. This did not necessarily translate into a universal love affair between Spielberg and his colleagues, most notably Peter Bogdanovich, who said, quote, Jaws was devastating to making artistic smaller films. They forgot how to do it. They're no longer interested. End quote. Bogdanovich is probably most famous for 1971's The Last Picture Show, 1972's What's Up Doc, 1973's Paper Moon. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In 1971, before Jaws, Spielberg was given the chance to direct a feature-length television movie based on a short story of the same title by Richard Matheson. Matheson adapted the screenplay from his own story. Spielberg was given the director clapboard, and they were ready to pick up a camera and begin rolling. The fascinating thing about Duel is that Spielberg made it not as a feature film, but as a TV movie of the week for ABC. It originally aired on November 13, 1971, it got him immediate praise. A producer by the name of Don Simpson says in that same book, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, quote, The media was saying all these things about this kid who made Duel, and then Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma would say, well, what he did wasn't so extraordinary. There was a little bit of envy. End quote. So an eventual legends like Scorsese would be envious of what Spielberg accomplished? You know that there's some quality work right there. Duel was nominated for two Emmys, but neither nomination was in the directing category. It won the Emmy for Best Sound Editing, and was also nominated for Cinematography. Not bad at all for a TV movie helmed by a new kid on the Hollywood block. With the success of Duel on American television, it was released as a theatrical feature in Europe and Japan. French critics, in particular, took a shine to Spielberg, and he now had enough leverage to take on his first theatrical feature in 1974. The Sugarland Express, starring Academy Award winner Goldie Hawn. And then it came. One of the highest grossing films ever. The film that launched The Fear of Beaches. The first summertime blockbuster with that famous Academy Award winning score, Jaws. So let's take on Duel first and get to know the protagonist, David Mann, played by Dennis Weaver, and his story. A brief but unsettling musical intro accompanies the Universal logo as the screen goes completely black. 
We hear the sounds of footsteps, a car door opening and closing, and the engine starting. Then there's a tracking point of view shot from the driver's perspective as the car backs out of the garage of a suburban home, shifts from reverse to drive, and begins to head down the quiet street. Dissolved to a tracking shot of the far left-hand lane of a busy city street. A pretty typical environment, city buses and privately owned vehicles just going about their business. Then there's a sense that this everyday visual is meant to set up the protagonist, David Mann, as an everyman. No one particularly distinctive, not physically intimidating or heroic in any way, just a normal guy going about his day. He's at our level, just out there doing his thing. One tracking shot dissolves to another, to another, as the voice of a radio announcer can be heard giving traffic reports and the weather forecast, a few ads for local businesses, and sports news. The opening credits roll during all of this as the point-of-view shots continue dissolving, showing highway signs indicating the names of California cities like Bakersfield. So we know where the still-unseen driver is, out along in the Pacific Coast. Eventually, there are some establishing shots of his red car driving along desolate desert highways, as the radio drones on and on. We finally see David Mann's face for the first time when he's on the Sierra Highway, and the camera pans up to show a close-up of the reflection of the top half of his face in the rearview mirror. Meanwhile, on the radio, a mail caller talks about his embarrassment over putting his wife's name in the census form as head of the household since she works and he's an at-home father. Now we're five and a half minutes into the film. It's at this point when David sees out his windshield that on the road ahead of him, is a dirty brown 18-wheeler diesel truck, spewing exhaust fumes into the air from a small smokestack and boldly displaying the word flammable across its ass in huge letters and again directly underneath in smaller letters. It's like, okay, we got it, flammable. David coughs a couple of times as the fumes seep into his own car through his open window and he mutters to himself, talk about pollution. The truck deliberately slows down, so David is now riding its tail. Cool camera angles and shots galore as David assesses the situation and ultimately passes the rattling truck. The radio drones on some more when suddenly the tedium is broken with a screech as the truck flies past him on his left. David screams, hey, as the truck resumes its position in front of him on the highway. So David pulls a move right out of the Massachusetts driving manual, also known as finger gestures for the open road, only to be on the receiving end of a loud, angry, long honking of its horn. David forgets about it and begins to chuckle at what he's been listening to on the radio. He pulls into a gas station slash laundromat. I don't know, are those things even real? Maybe in the West Coast? I have, I have no idea. He pulls in front of a pump, takes off his sunglasses to wipe them, when what to his wondering eyes should appear but that big-ass truck that pulls in and stops at the pump next to him. David is pretty apprehensive, especially since the truck driver stays motionless. All of him that's visible is his hand steady and unmoving on the steering wheel. As David keeps looking out his windshield, there's another jump as an attendant suddenly thrusts his face into the camera to begin washing down David's windshield. The happy attendant asks David what he needs, and David replies, fill it with ethyl. And the attendant makes a funny when he responds, if Ethel don't mind. <sighs> David looks less than amused at this misguided attempt at humor and just continues fixing his gaze in the truck's direction. He turns his head slowly to his right, and we then see what it is he's watching. The truck driver's boots as he gets out of the truck, but remains out of David's sight and Oz. In a not-so-subtle example of foreshadowing, the attendant warns David that he needs a new radiator hose. But David writes it off as the attendant is looking for more business and mutters, where have I heard that before? 
He calls out to him, I'll get it later. The attendant says, you're the boss. But David mutters to himself, not in my house, I'm not. So that leaves you wondering, how is David's consensus filled out? David gets changed for the public payphone, if you remember those, from the attendant when suddenly the truck driver, who apparently had the power of teleportation, angrily blasts his horn once again from his front seat. The attendant thinks it's meant for him and says that he'll be right with him. But David knows better and so do we. That was for David. David places a collect call, and you remember those, to his wife at home. As he says hello, we see him from a rather intriguing camera shot. He's in the background, and a random woman who went to the gas station slash laundromat, she's in the foreground, opening up a dryer door and pulling her laundry out. Why Spielberg wants us to see her wardrobe front and center, and David through the circular window of the door of the dryer is anybody's guess, but the conversation between him and his wife begins with him apologizing in a sickly sweet voice. It's such an attempt at sounding like a sweetie-fie that you know there's something that he did to fuck up royally. Cut to a shot of his wife standing in their living room with their two sons playing on the ground by her feet. She's standing in a position that clearly conveys, when I ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And brusquely says that he doesn't have to apologize. But he insists he wants to, that she was asleep when he left the house that morning, and apologizes for the previous night. Seems they were at the house of a one Steve Henderson. David suggests that she wants him to challenge this Steve dude to a fistfight, but she says no. But she thinks that David could have said something to him. And in a stunning, hit-you-between-the-eyes line of dialogue that comes out of nowhere, she says that, after all, Steve, quote, practically tried to rape me in front of the whole party, end quote. David tries to minimize the accusation, but she's not having it. She simply asks him if he'll be home by 6.30. And David says if his client lets him out in time, he has to see this client today because the client's leaving for Hawaii in the morning, and if David doesn't reach him today, he could lose the account. She keeps hurling verbal daggers at him and reminds him that he said there'd be no problem with him coming home on time. But that it's his mother, that his mother, God knows, is not coming to see her. She repeats, be on time, and hangs up on him. So this marriage seems to be hanging at the end of a rapidly fraying rope. And it looks like David has some major damage control to do. He hangs up looking frustrated and defeated, but he's going to have bigger fish to fry soon enough. He steps back outside to get back into his car. The attendant hands him his keys, and who hasn't changed position? You're right, it's our friendly highway diesel truck driver, who blasts his horn once again. As the attendant, once again, thinks the honk is for him and calls, I'll be right there. If you think this honking noise is getting pretty annoying, imagine being David. But David drives off, and the next thing he knows, the truck comes up fast and furious behind him, and then passes him once again aggressively. But instead of claiming his vehicular victory and driving off into the sunset, the truck driver causes more trouble. He deliberately drives slowly just to make David go out of his friggin' skull. He calls out in exasperation, I gave you the road, why don't you go? The only response he gets from the truck is the sound of its brakes squealing, just as they go past a sign that says, Passing Lane Ahead. And with those ducks all lined up neatly in a row, with a big cinematic bow tied around them for you to unravel, We'll stop there with the premise of this cat-and-mouse chase of a television flick. Just keep in mind that everything that you just heard is all in just the first 16 minutes. How's about we take the next exit off the Sierra Highway, let David and the truck that's homicidal and flammable, don't forget flammable, fight it out between themselves, and teleport ourselves over to Massachusetts, or more specifically, Cape Cod. 
at the fictional island of Amity for some seaworthy suspense coming right at us in the form not of a pollution-spewing homicidal diesel engine, but an Atlantic Ocean-flavored Cacaridon Cacarius, or to use layman's terms, a really big, really tooth-filled, really deadly great white shark. Welcome to the Massachusetts coastline. Here we eat scrod, love baseball, call water fountains water bubblers, call roundabouts rotaries, know that a Dunkin' Donuts regular coffee means three creams and three sugars, and there's nothing questionable about having a nice coffee in January. We also sell some pretty badass lighthouse souvenirs, and we're well aware that the Mayflower first landed and the Pilgrims first disembarked in Provincetown. So, sorry Plymouth, but you have to suck it. Steven Spielberg, once again born in December of 46, was a strapping young lad of 27 when he made Jaws in the summer of 74. The story of this aquatic antagonist opened to a record $7 million at the U.S. box office on June 20, 1975, and managed to stay the top-grossing film every weekend that summer. It eventually became the number one movie of all time before being dethroned two years later by George Lucas's Star Wars. Jaws opened on that same date of June 20 in Canada, Cameroon, Congo, and the Philippines before going global throughout the rest of the year. It should also be noted that this is the first Hollywood movie to be marketed aggressively through 30-second-long TV ads. Universal Studios plunked down a then-unheard-of sum of $700,000 for these commercials to air on all three major U.S. TV networks at the time, NBC, ABC, and CBS. The troubles that cast and crew encountered during the production, they're about as legendary as the film itself, but let's begin at the beginning. There was a man by the name of Peter Bradford Benchley. At different points throughout his career, he was an editor at Newsweek magazine, a reporter for the Washington Post, and a junior speechwriter for President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Throughout his adolescence, he would spend summers on Nantucket Island off Cape Cod, where he'd go fishing for sharks with his father and brother. Then, in 1964... He picked up a copy of the New York Daily News and read an article about a Long Island fisherman who harpooned a 4,500-pound great white. Seven years later, in 1971, he saw a documentary on sharks called Blue Water, White Death, and that sparked an idea for a book. He was a freelance writer at that point and hashed out a four-page outline for a story about a shark terrorizing a seaside community off the coast of Long Island, New York. Among the titles that he suggested that Doubleday Publishing rejected were The Stillness in the Water and Leviathan Rising. The book Jaws flew off the shelves, prompting a pretty fierce bidding war among publishing companies for the paperback rights. Bantam Books emerged the winner. A lot of Hollywood studios, predictably, were clamoring for the movie rights as well, but surprisingly, Universal initially rejected it. Enter producing partners Richard Zanuck and David Brown the team behind classics such as The Sound of Music, Patton, The French Connection, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and The Sting. After considering several candidates for director, who came into their office but Spielberg? According to actor and screenwriter Carl Gottlieb, a longtime friend of Spielberg, who actually had a role as the local newspaper editor Meadows in the film, quote, After Sugarland Express, which was very well received by the critics, but not a popular picture, Stephen felt that he needed to do something that was more of a popcorn movie, a mainstream movie. Zanuck and Brown had been optioning Jaws the novel, and there was a script in their office. Stephen picked it up from a pile on the desk and said, What's this? They said it's a movie about a shack. He said, Can I read it? They said, Sure. So he read it, and he said, Well, I gotta make this movie. 
end quote. As for the script itself, Benchley was new to screenwriting, so there were several drafts that he churned out based on his own novel, one that included a subplot from the book about Chief Brody's wife, Ellen, having an affair with Hooper, the Richard Dreyfus character. Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Howard Sacklow then gave the screenplay a go, and he made revisions that Spielberg did like. After adding some ideas of his own, Spielberg then turned to Carl Gottlieb, who punched the script up a little more. Filming began before there was a final draft, and Spielberg welcomed the ideas of the leading actors and Gottlieb to share notes and refine some dialogue. Spielberg said in the book Easy Riders Raging Bulls, quote, I knew what I needed to do was something that was very frightening to me. You subjugate absolute control to meaningful collaboration. Everybody gets into a room to determine jointly what kind of movie we're going to make here. End quote. And actor Roy Scheider, who plays Chief Martin Brody, said, quote, You had a receptive director and three ambitious, inventive actors. We would go up to Stephen's house, have dinner, and improvise scenes, and the next day we would shoot. End quote. On a side note, Roy Scheider had a much different working relationship with the director of Jaws 2, French director Jeannot Soir. In researching for this episode, what actually went down, I actually came across two different versions of what happened. According to Life magazine reports, Scheider was contractually obligated to star in Jaws 2, which made him unavailable and unable to accept the leading role that was offered him in the Best Picture Oscar winner that year, The Deer Hunter. He would have played the leading role that got Robert De Niro an Oscar nomination. But in another version of the story, according to Collider.com, Scheider had dropped out of The Deer Hunter, much to the chagrin of Universal Studios. So they worked their legal maneuverings to make him contractually obligated to come back as Chief Brody in the Jaws sequel. He was wicked resentful of being there and clashed with the director, even though he was paid four times more than he was for the original. And can we talk for a second about that John Williams score? It got him his second of five Academy Award wins for musical score. The first one was for the 1971 film version of the stage musical Fiddler on the Roof. To date, he's got 52 nominations total, with five of them winning. But as for the Jaws score, it looks simple on paper, but come on. An E and F bass line repeated, that's all. That has become as instantly recognizable as the film itself. This is seriously epic stuff. Scheider actually came out and said, quote, that score has become as popular as the national anthem, end quote. And Spielberg went on record as saying, quote, the score was clearly responsible for half the success of the movie, end quote. As far as the plot setup of the film goes, let's plunge in. That score begins as the opening credits begin to roll. Cut from a black screen to an underwater point of view shot from an unseen sea creature's perspective as it makes its way through the sea. Then cut to a nighttime shot of a beach on the shores of the fictional Cape Cod island of Amity. There's a group of maybe 20, 25 young kids around a bonfire, smoking dope, talking, sucking face, and just in general having themselves a groovy time. One young man, Tom Cassidy, played by Jonathan Philly, and one young woman, Chrissy Watkins, played by Susan Backlany, make eye contact, flirt with each other, and make their way together down to the water. She invitingly takes off her clothes and dives into the water naked. She's telling him to join her, but the dudes hit the sauce a bit too hard, so he's not quite up to the task. Or several tasks, if you catch my sea drift. Romeo is drunkenly lagging behind, laughing, panting, struggling to take off his clothes, but failing miserably at it, before collapsing on his back on the sand. He's saying under his breath with pathetic and doomed determination, I'm not drunk. Slow down. I can swim. Just can't undress myself. Meanwhile, Juliet's splashing around in the water and treading, waiting for him. 
Then we get that famous point-of-view shot from the shock's perspective as it approaches her under the surface of the water and edges lethally closer and closer. Then she suddenly jerks and jerks again. She disappears under the water, then resurfaces screaming as she's taken for a disturbing ride back and forth from the clutches of the jaws of this animal. Meanwhile, Casanova's lying on his back on the beach, oblivious to her plight. She keeps screaming bloody murder that it hurts, it hurts, crying out for help. She clutches a buoy at one point, and then she's pulled underneath for good. An eerie silence ensues with a long shot of the tranquil water. The following morning, we meet Chief Martin Brody, played by Roy Scheider, and his wife Ellen, played by Lorraine Gary, who moved to Amity from New York City for peace and quiet with their kids. He takes a phone call about a young girl reported missing, and no prizes for guessing that it's Chrissy. He arrives at the beach, where he meets up with a now sober Tom Cassidy, who's concerned that she's drowned. He says that he grew up here and he's a local, though he's now a student at Trinity College, which is in Hartford, Connecticut. In the background, there's a big tacky billboard, which we also see in a close-up, and it's got an illustration of a bikini-clad woman on her stomach on a raft in the ocean, with the words, Amity Island Welcomes You, scrawled across the top. And, underneath the image, 50th Annual Regatta, July 4th through 10th. It's the kind of image that you'd probably see in some framed photograph that contestants would be forced to buy in that room full of tacky junk after winning a round on the 80s version of Wheel of Fortune. Poor Chrissy's remains are then found along the shore. Crabs are crawling all over her partially devoured arm. The local medical examiner rules the cause of death a shack attack. So Brody decides to close the beaches. Brody even asks one of his men, where do we keep the beach closed signs? But the answer he gets is, we never had any. So it goes without saying. They're in really deep waters here. Thank you. But this order from the chief of the Amity PD really toasts the marshmallows of Mayor Larry Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton, whose main concern is the local economy that depends on tourism. He argues with Brody, saying, You yell shock, we got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Vaughn prevails, and next thing we know, the beach is jam-packed with swimmers and sunbathers of all ages. Brody and his wife are there, and he's mighty uncomfortable for obvious reasons. It's here when a young boy named Alex Kintner, played by Jeffrey Voorhees, comes out of the water, goes over to his mother, played by Lee Fierro, and asks if he can stay in the water just a little longer. She wants him to come out and tells him that his hands are beginning to prune, but reluctantly gives him ten more minutes. We get a few more little snippets of Cape Cod beach life. Kids on rafts, another kid playing fetch with his dog, an older person floating on their back, and then it happens. The kid with the dog calls out for the dog and does not see where it's gone. Cut to a close-up of the stick floating on the surface of the ocean. And we can pretty much put two and two together and make four and realize that the dog was the pre-dinner cocktail. Then we get another point-of-view shot under the water from the shock's perspective as it approaches the doomed Alex on his raft. Pretty horrific sequence follows, beginning with that brilliant, famous zoom-in on Chief Brody's face as he realizes with horror what's happening. That poor Alex is now the blue plate special. Everyone screams at the gruesome sight of blood shooting up and out onto the surface of the water, and they run out onto the beach. In the awkward silence that follows, Mrs. Kentna paces frantically back and forth at the water's edge, calling her son's name repeatedly before the disturbing sight of his deflated and bloody raft washes up on shore, ending the scene. Cut to a handwritten sign offering a $3,000 reward to anyone who catches and kills the shock that claimed Alex's life. This leads to a room full of fishermen shouting over each other, with Chief Brody and Mayavon trying to maintain order. When the room quiets down, one of the fishermen, 
who thinks that the bounty is totally ridiculous, mockingly asks, Is that $3,000 bounty on the shack in cash? What shack? Half of the room bursts into laughter as we just holler at our screams, Are you an asshole or just a prick? But Brody confirms that the beach will be closed for 24 hours, prompting an outcry. One voice shouts out, 24 hours is like three weeks! A little melodramatic, maybe, but if fishing is your livelihood... The chaos is interrupted by the screeching sounds of fingernails going down a chalkboard. The nails belong to an eccentric professional shark hunter named Quint, played by Robert Shaw. He boldly declares, I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Me by myself. For that, you get the head, tail, the whole damn thing. Meanwhile, an oceanographer named Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, introduces himself outside to Brody. Brody was expecting him. He had called the nearby Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Hooper says that he needs to see the remains of the victims, and when he does, he confirms that the deaths were from an unusually big shock. Things look optimistic when some of the local fishermen catch a tiger shock, but he says that the radius of its jaws don't match the bite marks on the victims. In other words, try again. But Mayavon thinks differently and proclaims the beaches safe once again. And that is where we will stop, because believe it or not, at this point, we have not even seen the shock on screen yet. What say we hop into that 18-wheeler diesel truck and merge into the oncoming traffic of behind-the-scenes fun facts? So proceed with the knowledge that there will be spoilers in these facts. So, spoiler alert, now. Let's start with Duel. Number 5. The original story, written by author and screenwriter Richard Matheson, first appeared in the April 1971 issue of Playboy. Spielberg was desperately searching for a viable script for his next project, and his secretary, Nona Tyson, found Matheson's story and sent it to Spielberg. According to Spielberg, quote, I started laughing because she's giving me a Playboy to read, and she said, don't look at the girls, read the short story. She helped him track down the movie rights and found out that a teleplay was in development at ABC and Universal with producer George Eckstein. Spielberg met with Eckstein and brought with him a rough cut of his 73-minute series premiere episode of Columbo, Murder by the Book, and Spielberg got the directing gig for Duel. Number 4. Matheson based his short story on an actual road rage incident. Matheson had played a round of golf on November 22, 1963 the same day President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. On his car ride home from playing a round of golf on that date, he was in a daze from the shock of the news when a truck driver began relentlessly tailgating him. Number three. For the downtrodden protagonist David Mann, Spielberg chose actor Dennis Weaver because of what Spielberg saw as his impressive performance as the jittery and feeble hotel night manager in Orson Welles' 1958 film touch of evil. All in all, during the shooting of Duel, Weaver drove more than 2,000 miles and did many of his own stunts, not the least of which is the phone booth scene at the Snake-Rama gas station. And that was done in one single take. Number two. Determined to find just the right style truck to be David Mann's nemesis, Spielberg actually held auditions for semi-trucks on the back lot of Universal. He auditioned seven different styles before deciding on a 1955 Peterbilt 281 because he felt that the split windshield, rounded lights, and elongated hood represented the menacing features of the truck's face. 
For David Mann's cast, Spielberg chose a small red Plymouth Valiant to stand out in size and color from not only the truck, but also the earth tones of the California landscape. And number one. There was one and only one chance to film the climactic cliff crash, since they had the one and only one truck. To pull off the scene, the production crew rigged the truck with a dead clutch so that it would not need a driver. As it went over the edge, Spielberg had seven different cameras from different angles filming in order to give the editors a choice of which shots to use in order to stretch out the drop. As for the sound, Spielberg took a low raw sound effect from Universal's 1954 monster movie, Creature from the Black Lagoon. He'd use the same sound effect for the death of the great white shark and Jaws. And speaking of that man-eating denizen of the deep, let's pivot now to a hearty helping of fun facts about the making of Jaws. Number five. Searching for the right actor to play the role of Chief Martin Brody, Spielberg told Ain't It Cool News that he tested dozens of possibilities and even met with Charlton Heston. But Spielberg found Heston too pompous for the character. Robert Duvall, hot off of The Godfather 1 and 2, was only interested in playing the character Quint so he walked away from the negotiating table. Then, at a party that both Spielberg and Roy Scheider attended, fate stepped in. Spielberg recalls that, quote, Roy actually said to me, You have such a glum look in your face, what's the matter? I said, uh, I'm having trouble casting my picture. He actually said, Who have you gone out to? I named a few names, and he looked at me and said, What about me? I looked at him and said, You're right, what about you? Will you make my movie? Without even asking for a script, he said, Of course, if you want me, I'll do it. End quote. Good thing, too. Amidst all of the mechanical failures, the messy script, the unhappy studio execs, and the personality conflicts, Scheider proved to be invaluable. According to a 1975 story in Time magazine, quote, When tempers frayed and hung heavy over the production, Scheider usually just tuned out and worked on his suntan. End quote. Number four. As for the character Hooper, Spielberg was considering a few names, including John Voight, who turned it down, Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges, both of The Last Picture Show, and Joel Grey, who had won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for the film version of Cabaret. But Spielberg claims that Richard Dreyfuss, who had just hit it big with George Lucas's coming-of-age film American Graffiti, was his first choice. But Dreyfuss was not interested, because he didn't find the character Hooper to be interesting. He told Spielberg, quote, I would go to see this movie in a minute. I don't want to do it. End quote. Then after some discussions with Kyle Gottlieb, Dreyfus came around and decided that there may be something worthwhile to the character after all. But that did not stop Dreyfus from acting like sort of a bastard during filming. He'd be vocally critical of the project, according to Roy Scheider, saying things like, What am I doing on this island? Why am I here? I should be signing autographs and saddies. I should be feeded all over New York City. But, in his defense, Dreyfus does suffer from bipolar disorder, and in the 70s, that kind of thing was not diagnosed or treated really too easily. And the fact that he was a heavy cocaine user in the 70s probably didn't help much. Though he is fortunately clean and sober now. Number three. At first, the producers thought that it might be possible to make the film with a trained shack. But once they had tumbled off their lofty cloud and fell back to Earth, the production said that they would use a mechanical one that would be intercut with shots of actual shacks taken in advance off the coast of Australia by the same photographers who worked on the documentary Blue Water, White Death, that same one that had influenced Peter Benchley to write the Jaws novel. Historically, in Hollywood films, ocean scenes would be shot in huge studio tanks. 
But Spielberg was a stickler for the real deal and insisted on none of any of this. He wanted to shoot the boat, the three leads, and the shock all in the same shot on the surface of the actual ocean with the actual horizon. Filmed at Martha's Vineyard throughout the summer of 1974, the movie excited some locals and infuriated others. Spielberg would send out on a motorboat someone from the crew to ask both locals and vacationers to clear the area so that there'd be no sailboats in the shot. Production designer Joe Alves recalls, quote, Steve's idea was to have nothing on the horizon. He wanted to get this vulnerability of three men out there in their boat, and the shock. The studio kept saying, couldn't you shoot if there was just one boat? End quote. Years later, in 2011, Spielberg told Ain't It Cool News that he could not believe the gumption that he had back then, saying, quote, I was naive about the ocean. I was naive about Mother Nature. And the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can conquer the elements was foolhardy. But I was too young to know I was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank. End quote. Number two. <laughs> Veteran special effects director Bob Matty designed the mechanical shock that was used. There were actually three of them, all constructed at Raleigh Hopper's Motion Picture and Equipment Rental in California and driven cross-country by truck to Massachusetts. The final film does have a few long shots of real great whites combined with these three fakes, collectively named Bruce, after Spielberg's attorney, Bruce Ramer. But crew members mostly referred to the fakes as, quote, that son of a bitchin' bastard rig, end quote. Each of the three was about 25 feet in length and weighed about 2,000 pounds, made of steel with flexible joints. But the one time that it didn't really work was the filming of Quint's death scene. The engine that was supposed to thrust the shock forward didn't really have the force that Spielberg hoped for. And according to production manager William Gilmore Jr., quote, The shock sort of came up like a limp dick, skidded along the water, and fell onto the boat. End quote. And Spielberg biographer Joseph McBride writes, quote, Stephen went bananas. It was the only time during the making of the film that he really lost it. And it's the only part of the film that looks hokey. But at that point, you've been with the film so long, you kind of go with it. End quote. And number one. Robert Shaw, who plays Quint, helped to write his memorable monologue where he remembers his time in the Indianapolis. According to Spielberg, quote, The first time we attempted to shoot it, Robert came over to me and said, You know, Stephen, all three of these characters have been drinking, and I think I could do a much better job in this speech if you let me actually have a few drinks before I do the speech. And I unwisely gave him permission. I guess he had more than a few drinks because two crew members actually had to carry him onto the boat and help him into his chair. I had two cameras on the scene, and we never got through the scene. He was just too far gone. So we wrapped. At about two o'clock in the morning, my phone rings, and it's Robert. He had a complete blackout and no memory of what had gone down that day. He said, Stephen, tell me I didn't embarrass you. He was very sweet, but he was panic-stricken. He said, Stephen, please tell me I didn't embarrass you. What happened? Are you going to give me a chance to do it again? I said, yes, the second you're ready, we'll do it again. The next morning, he came to the set. He was ready at 7.30 and out of makeup, and it was like watching Laurence Olivier on stage. We did it in probably four takes. I think we were all watching a great performance, and the actors on camera were watching a great performance. End quote. Shaw was actually a resident of Ireland. His work visa was close to expiring, which meant that he would owe the IRS taxes on what he made doing 1973's The Sting and 1974's The Taking of Pelham 123 so he tried his best to keep his work time days in the U.S. within the legally required limit, 
Every day that he was not required on the island, he'd fly to Bermuda or Montreal. Ultimately, he did end up owing quite a bit, but he offset the debt with overtime pay from Jaws when the production ran insanely behind schedule. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So as the month of August continues to chug along its merry little way, the poll question for this episode, number 60, was... Which parody of Jaws would you say is the best? Chevy Chase as the land shock in the first season of SNL? The plane flying through the clouds in the opening credits of the slapstick fast airplane? Or the vicious vacuum cleaner chasing Michael Keaton and his young son around the living room in 1983's Mr. Mom? On Twitter, there were seven votes with 28% of them going to Mr. Mom, 29% to Chevy Chase's land shock, but the majority of the vote, a whopping 43%, went to airplane. And on Facebook, 47% of the 17 votes went for the land shock, 35% to airplane, and Mr. Mom trails behind with 18%. So, in aggregate, that means that airplane just barely managed to eke out a victory with a very slim lead over the land shock. As always, a big thank you to everyone who voted. These polls are nothing more than silly fun meant to generate interest in each new episode, so thank you for making it happen. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll, just check out the Silver Screenist group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or you can email SilverScreenistPod at gmail.com. And here is the point where we head on over to the listener trivia segment. In each episode, a trivia question is put forth that either directly or indirectly relates to that episode's featured movie or cast and crew involved. If you're listening to this episode, that means you. Everyone's invited to take a crack at answering. If you're apprehensive about having your full name read aloud, no worries there. I err on the side of caution. I only announce first name and last initial. But if you tell me otherwise when you send in your answer, then full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing, either. Does not matter what episode you're listening to, how far back, or how recent. Answer any trivia question at any time. You'll get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator of anything, from music to podcasts to websites to pottery to cupcakes, I'm always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug. People help people, and that's all there is to it. So last time, Carlo from the podcast The Movie Loot joined me for a look back at two 1987 summertime comedy releases, Adventures in Babysitting and Summer School, both from 35 years ago. And here was the question. Kyle Reiner directed Summer School. He also is a writer and an actor. He plays the character Saul Bloom in what trilogy of films starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, and Don Cheadle as a team of robbers looking to pull off a heist? at three Las Vegas casinos at the same time. And the answer is... Ocean's Eleven. Sit up, check your messages, and claim your meme, Mary C. Long-time listener who collects these memes like the Great White collects human limbs. Good going, Mary. And good going as well to my buddy Chris from the Movie Psycho podcast, who lines him up and knocks him down like a bowling champ. Check out his show, The Movie Psycho, which you can find on Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, and fun places like that. Liz M. continues her streak, too, and offers one of her favorite lines of dialogue from Reina's character, Saul. If you ever ask me that question again, Daniel, you will not wake up the following morning. 
Joining them in the winner's circle is Greg S., who, along with Liz, previously guested a few months ago on this show for a talk about last year's Dune. So if you have not listened to that one yet, here's a shameless plug for episode 48 with Greg and Liz. The No on 15 podcast, a great show that I'll read right from their Twitter bio to make sure I got it right. We talk movies from the 80s, 90s, and today. Home of the 30-second challenge. Get a dose of nostalgia. Discover something new to watch. The No on 15 podcast and I, we've been in contact with each other about having them come on this show, so stay tuned for that. And last but not least, there's Gail R., a member of the Silver Screeners Facebook page and repeat trivia conqueror. Thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, no time like the present. Join the trivia. It's fun. And why not begin with this episode's question? Richard Dreyfuss would collaborate with Steven Spielberg again after the success of Jaws. He had the leading role in what 1977 sci-fi film as a husband and father in Indiana who encounters a UFO and becomes obsessed with life on other planets. After his wife, played by Terry Garr of Young Frankenstein and Tootsie, takes their kids and leaves him, he sets out on a cross-country quest to Devil's Tower in Wyoming, and that's where the story really kicks into high gear. Name this Steven Spielberg-directed extraterrestrial tale that predates his film E.T. by five years. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram, and that brings episode 60 to a close. As always, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please do not hesitate to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the great white shack swimming for a midday snack to go with his cup of cocoa towards the nameless, faceless driver of the 18-wheeler truck and the driver's attempts to scare the shit out of the vicious fish. <laughs>